This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello, listeners. Welcome along to this week's episode of Ladies Who London podcast. It's Alex um, welcoming you back to episode three solo. Although I'm not solo this week, uh, I have a really lovely guest um, who I'm going to be introducing very, very shortly. Um, But I'm coming to you this week from Hampshire. I am moving around quite a lot at the minute. Um, for a variety of reasons, but I'm currently living at my parents in Hampshire for a little while, a couple of months maybe. Um, so you are probably getting used to all the different noises that these different rooms make. As a relatively, you know, new and mostly unprofessional podcaster, it's quite interesting to sort of see how different rooms make different noises. So here's hoping this one uh, sounds pretty good. The last one was a bit echoey, so we'll see, we'll see. Anyway, um, thanks for coming back this week. I've had a couple of people get in touch this week with some pretty big news. So um, firstly, a little shout out to Darren Wall and to a lady on Instagram who's going by the name of Murray. Um, I don't know if that's your real name or if that's a pseudonym, but thank you both of you for sending uh, the information through about um the coronation crowns and the diamonds that are going in there now this is of particular interest to podcast listeners because of course we have chatted about the Kohinoor diamond in the past and news has come out this week that um Camilla will because she'll be being crowned as the queen consort so uh, essentially that that means the the wife of the king uh, she will be crowned alongside him now uh, prince philip was not crowned alongside the queen um I, I don't know if you know why. Well, okay, let, let's assume you don't. If you do, fast forward. Um, if you don't, um, the reason is very simply. So you, you often have a queen consort who will be crowned with a king uh, if they're already married, of course. If they're not, then, you know, whatever, it's fine. Um, but when it comes to a a woman being the person who has inherited the throne, sadly, the the kind of line or the lineage is a little bit it's a little bit old-fashioned uh the uh, feminism hasn't quite arrived uh, to that section so i always describe it like a pack of cards if you imagine that you're playing cards and somebody lays down a queen if someone then lays down a king it trumps that queen so in very much the same way if the woman has inherited the throne aka a queen and her husband is called king then it means that essentially he in in the big you know lineup of things he sort of trumps her, which is why Prince Philip was never king, king consort. He was never that. Um, he was only ever Prince Philip, and he wasn't crowned alongside her. So these are all these little interesting little reasons why these things are a bit different um, between the genders when it comes to uh, to coronation. So anyway, back to my original point. Uh, Camilla will be crowned as queen consort alongside Charles. Now, normally, what happens in coronations is they you know they get all they 
dust off all the old bling and they find jewels and somebody digs one up and goes oh hey do you want this in your crown and ooh history and all that kind of stuff um this year um what camilla has decided is to repurpose a previous crown and she's going to be using the crown of queen mary uh so queen mary was the queen consort to king george the fifth i got that right george the fifth yes um or is it sixth? Oh god, I can't remember now. No, fifth. It is fifth. And basically, it's it's a really lovely crown, Queen Mary. If you remember the crown, if you've seen the crown, in the very first series, the first episode, or possibly two, there's this really old queen who just won't die. Uh, she's really tall, very statuesque, and um, yeah, that, that's Queen Mary. Basically, she's the the queen's uh, grandmother, um, our queen's grandmother, um, and she had this really beautiful. Very elegant crown. She was a very tall lady, and it's it's beautiful, purple, and there's lovely kind of ermine around the bottom as is standard, with just very delicate arches made out of diamonds and things. Right slap bang in the front is the Kohinoor diamond, and I I think we must have spoken about where the Kohinoor diamond is um, when we we talked about um, about it quite a while ago now, and um, yeah, so right slap bang in the middle is this amazing 104 carat diamond, the Koh-i-Noor. She has decided to repurpose Queen Mary's crown, so great for sustainability and not having to, you know, create something else. But she's also decided that, interestingly, she is not going to have the Koh-i-Noor diamond in it. Of course, we spoke about what a controversial diamond this is and for you know the whole history that we talked about if you've not listened to that one go back and listen um, because it's a very long, very interesting story with all sorts of skullduggery and you know, general British empire blah, and all that kind of stuff. So she's decided she's not going to do that. But what is going to happen is they are going to add in a couple of diamonds that were in Queen Elizabeth II's personal collection. Now, I don't know if we've ever spoken about the Cullinan diamond. We might have mentioned it in passing. The Cullinan diamond was a huge diamond that was found in Africa um, in the, the mines owned by a chap called Cullinan, hence the name, and he gifted it to uh, the royal family. It was, I think when it was found, it was around 2,000 carats, and it was then split down into the largest cut diamond in the world, which is in the scepter, um, and that is 530 carats. <laughs> this is ridiculous uh, hugeness of diamond. Uh, so in the scepter that was seen at the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II and will also uh, be seen again at the coronation, I believe, anyway. Yes, no, of course it will. Um, and then the second one, Cullinan II, was right at the front of the Queen's crown, which is the same crown that King Charles III will be crowned with. It will just be retooled a little bit. Um, she then had, I say she being the Queen, had three and four um, in a brooch. I mean, casual, you know, like one and two is 530 and 350 carats respectively. And then three and four, she, the Queen wore as a little kind of pendant brooch. I might pop some images up on uh, on Instagram about that. Um, and they are now going to be co-opted um, into the crown. She used to call them Granny's Chips, uh, as in the chips that have come off this massive one that belonged to her grandmother. Um, and so those are going to go into the crown, which is really quite interesting. So there's going to be even more to see for guests visiting the Tower of London after the coronation. But thank you to everyone who sent me that um, that story. Um, it's, it's definitely doing the guide rounds at the minute. Everyone's all over Twitter about it. And when I did Global Tea Break many, many moons ago, um, I did have one of my colleagues come on who is a proper kind of Jules Watcher. So I'm wondering whether we maybe get her in and have a little chat about some of the, uh, the fancy jewels. Um, all about that. We'll see. We'll see. Now I'm thinking um, that it's uh, 
also Queen Mary, if I might be wrong about that, but I think it was Queen Mary, who was known as Cartier's counter because she had this very large shelf-like chest on which were displayed all manner of glorious jewels. So she was known as Cartier's counter um, for just having them all on show, essentially. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we, we might get Viv on to have a little chat about some uh, some jewels. Let me know. If you want, if you fancy that, drop me um, a note and let me know because I think that could be quite interesting uh, to do. Anyway, um, what we're going to talk about this week. I A couple of weeks ago, I was invited to go to an exhibition at the Museum of London in Docklands. Now, a lot of you will know that the, let's say, traditional classic Museum of London uh, in the City of London uh, has closed down. It is being moved. It'll be moved into where the Smithfield market is currently and it won't be open for a few years. So we've got a while to go, but they have a second museum, which is in Docklands. Um, and so over by Canary Wharf, it's f- f- one of my favourite museums in London. I think I prefer it to the main one, actually. Don't tell anybody. Uh, and it's all about the docks. You know how much I love the docks and all that kind of history. And so it's a, it's an ex- exhibition all about executions. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. And we've talked a lot about executions on this podcast. And we've, you know, spoken about a, a whole heap of people who often end up on the wrong side of the law. And so when I went to visit this exhibition, those of you who, who follow me on Instagram and had a little look at my stories would have known that I got really excited about it. Um, I genuinely think it's a brilliant exhibition. I don't, you know, I... I always tell the truth about what I think about these things. And I, I was in there for an hour and a half and only had to leave because I had to go somewhere else. Um, it answered a lot of questions for me. There were all sorts of bits of knowledge that I had that were a bit hazy. And I thought, mm, I've read about that. I think it's that, but I'm not sure. And it answered so many questions and gave me a whole heap of other information and people and a few people that we've talked about as well, which we'll come on to in a little bit. So we got Beverly, the curator of the exhibition, on uh, to chat this week. I say we, me, I did. Um, So that is what this week's podcast is. We're going to be looking at the history of executions. Now, don't worry if you're not massively into the gory stuff. It's not really that gory. We're talking about the I mean you know us people places and events right it's it's about all the stuff that goes along with it the the people who would go and watch how it you know how these things sort of played in society it's I was absolutely fascinated she was a fantastic guest so I really hope that you enjoy uh, this podcast um next week we're gonna have another guest back on uh the lovely Fiona Lucas who has been on before and she is going to be talking all about Saxon London. Uh, so that will be next week's podcast. But for now, I'm going to hand over to the lovely Beverly from the Museum of London. Enjoy. Welcome along this week, listeners. Um, We have uh, a guest this week, the lovely Beverly Cook, who is the lead curator of the Executions uh, exhibition, which is on at the Museum of London in Docklands. Um, If any of you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen I took a little visit there uh, last week or the week before. to an, ex- to an exhibition that I thought was absolutely amazing. And we talk a lot about executions on this podcast. Uh, a lot of the people we chat about end up uh, at the end of a noose or otherwise. So I thought it would be a really good opportunity to chat to Beverly and find out a little bit more about 
executions in time gone by and some of the human interest stories behind it as well. So welcome, Beverly, to the Ladies in London podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming along. So this ex- exhibition, it started at the Museum of London, let's say classic, the one in the city of London, and it's now moved over to the Docklands Museum. Um, and what was, why, why did, because this, this, this is quite a topic, isn't it, for an exhibition? Often it's an exhibition of you know, lovely ceramic and this, that and the other, and we've gone executions. Why, why, why is, is that really? Yeah, well, I mean, it is a very challenging subject that a lot of people do find very difficult. But, you know, at the Museum of London, it's really important that we cover all all aspects of uh, London's history, however dark and difficult they may be. And um, I think it was something that we realised that we hadn't really covered. And yet um, public executions were embedded in London society for over 700 years. And it's the public aspect that this exhibition particularly focuses on, not just the point of execution itself, but also what happens around the execution scene, how it impacted on London's landscape, economy, um, and um, its culture in general. What I think is is really interesting, and and you say it's about everything that happens around the executions as well. I've often talked about, you know, London as we are, we can, we can see an opportunity, right? <laughs> if, there's, if there's money to be made, if there's contacts to be had, and the number of things. So when you first go into the exhibition, it talks about the different ways that you could, you know, go, basically. Um, but then there's so much, like you say, around it. So I'm the bits about people having a, a thriving business selling pies. And um, one thing that I've talked about a lot on my tours is Mother Proctor's Pews as well. Can you explain a bit more about Mother Proctor's Pews? Because this is, I think she's phenomenal. Yeah, well, Mother Proctor was a very um, entrepreneurial woman. Um, she would hire out pews um, at great cost. You know, she earned a lot of money for hiring out pews um, around the site of Tyburn to those who could afford seats. Obviously, not all Londoners could afford seats. But I, the fact that uh, this was a very lucrative business really represented that um, the people who went to public audi- um, public executions were a very broad audience. Um, I think it's um, often been referred to as there's, there was a difference between the crowd and the mob. The mob oh. were the young, <laughs> the young apprentices, the young boys who were hanging around and, you know, wanted to see the gory side. But there was also the crowd and often um, educated people, um, middle class people, people from a broad range of backgrounds who were compelled in a way to see this, to view this part of um, London life. But also, um, you know, to report and to record and to write or to draw what they saw. And sometimes, you know, when they write about this, it was almost as if they felt compelled to confront their own mortality by watching someone else suffer. Um, So there's a whole range of emotions going on amongst the crowd, as well as, as you can imagine, what was happening on the gallows itself. I always refer to it as the Netflix of the day because it was entertainment, wasn't it? People would literally come in for that. That was their that was their daily entertainment. Well, not daily, but so you know, whenever well, it was on. Yes, 
And, um, you know, this was one of the um, problems that many people, you know, really sort of picked up on. People like Dickens was horrified by the spectacle of the crowd when he witnessed uh, two public executions. And, um, you know, obviously the whole point about a public execution was that it should be the ultimate deterrent, you know, for future crime. And, of course, quite clearly, it wasn't that at all. Um, the, the crowd did vary, actually. You know, there was, um, and the mood of the crowd was very, you know, like any event, you know, you get a sort of mass uh, response in a way. And um, sometimes the crowd were drawn to an execution because they sympathised with the person who was being executed. Yeah. So the mood in the crowd, the sound of the crowd would have been very different in those situations than the sound of the crowd uh, where perhaps a notorious criminal that, you know, did a terrible murder or a mass murderer might have been um, executed where the crowd were sort of like goading the person who was being executed. God, that's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty brutal, isn't it? I mean, yeah, the, you can't imagine. And one of the things as well, so along with that is, you'd often get celebrity criminals. Like we, we've done an episode on Jack Shepard, uh, the jailbreak extraordinaire in the past. And again, that would probably be a third type of crowd, wouldn't it? Uh, of, of almost coming to see a celebrity, really. Uh, Jack Shepard is actually one of my favourite ever Londoners. Amazing, he's just he? like, <laughs> to me, he sums up what a Londoner is. You know, he's resilient, he's resourceful. Um, I, one of the great things that I love about Jack is that he was so young. He was only 22. Um, he was obviously a very talented apprentice and he used his talents as an apprentice carpenter to carve his way out of Newgate um, on several occasions. But when he was finally taken on the procession from uh, Newgate to Tyburn and finally executed uh, for robbery, um, you know, he he enjoyed, he used it, you know, he became, as you say, like he already was a celebrity, but he just milked that completely, that procession, that two-hour procession. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You'd, well, you'd, you'd lean into it. And the best thing for me, the whole thing, was when he stood on the gallows and he threw his uh, autobiography out to the publisher. <laughs> you know, that is just so classic. And um, I just, I just think, you know, no wonder he became a working class hero for Londoners for over 100 years, really. It's, you know, we don't know of Jack Shepard so much now, uh, but, you know, for over 100 years, he was the man. And, um, you know, a lot of plays and books were written about him and were hugely popular. Yeah. And it's interesting you say we don't hear about him quite so much because I often think it's, we, you know, we hear a lot about the the upper echelons in history. They don't get forgotten as much. The Dukes, the Earls, the Royals. And we do hear about their executions. But for a lot of it, the executions are for the general populace because there's a, an awful lot that could get you executed, wasn't there? There was a the bloody code, which was pretty, I mean... <laughs> you know, you tied your shoelaces the wrong way and you were, you know, off to the gallows noose practically. Um, so it, a lot of these executions are for the general folk. You know, you get the high profile ones of Duke Blardy Blah, who's done something, you know, against the king. But for a lot of people, I mean, there was a lot that they could fall foul of, wasn't there? 
Yeah, I mean, I always think, uh, I, I'm a 19th and 20th century historian, so I look at the earlier period and I think, oh, people were primarily being executed because they were rebels, traitors, um, or rioters. Mm. Quite straightforward. You know, usually uh, crimes against the state because the state was more unstable. So obviously, that oh, and religious persecution, of course. Oh yes, let's well. not forget that. So, <laughs> quite a big chapter so in our history. <laughs> more crimes against those things. When the state becomes more stable, um, and we become more capitalist, you start to see this rise in um, the capital code against crimes that are against property, and against the property of the person and land and also uh, crimes against people. So that's why you suddenly get this rise in capital offences that, as you say, was known as the bloody code. So by the end of the 18th century, when we're becoming a more sort of like urbanised um, environment, uh, there are over 200 crimes for which you could be executed. I'm not quite sure whether people were executed for all of those. Yes. I think like one of my favorite, well, there's a few favorite ones, which are slightly bizarre. I know this is a, a serious subject, but um, let me try and remember it because it's very long. It's cutting down a young tree in a gentleman's pleasure garden. Now that is so bizarre. Um, another one. Uh, very specific, very you kind of think someone must have done that at some point, And then that gentleman got very cross, yes. like you've got to put it in the code. And that's how I imagine it. Well, you know, it's not a, going to be a common occurrence, is it, what you'd think? No. The other one that I love is impersonating a Greenwich pensioner. Brilliant. Now, Greenwich pensioners must have had privileges, a bit like if you get the freedom of the City of London, mm. because the Greenwich pensioners um, were retired Navy officers usually. Yeah. So yeah. I'm assuming that they had certain privileges that were worth impersonating for and risking, yeah. risking death in a way. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people who were condemned to death didn't actually go to the gallows. Um, being condemned to death was almost like the only form of punishment. Uh, but there was this whole system afterwards um, of every prisoner who was condemned to death had the right to petition for mercy. Um, and most prisoners, most of those who were condemned would have taken up that right. Um, Interestingly, a lot of people who were not reprieved and who actually did have to, you know, go to the gallows were often maybe new arrivals to London who didn't oh, have the uh, contacts or the influence um, that those who were well established in the capital might have been able to draw on to give them character references that would have um, assisted with their petitions for mercy. Yeah, that was something that, that struck me in the museum as well, is when I was I was reading about that, that we can't, we've always assumed that once the death penalty, you know, once the, the gavel goes down and, oh, it's death penalty for you, that that's it, game over. Um, but I was really surprised to read that the the, the vast amount, as you say, would, would petition and would get off. And it was almost that kind of almost slap of the wrist of, oh, death penalty, okay, you're fine. So that was, yeah, really surprising to me. So I suppose the ones who do yeah. make it there, they're, they're making a point or like you say, I haven't got the the backup really to, to be able to, to get to that point. 
Yeah, by the by the sort of early 19th century, you see that the, ma the majority of people going to the gallows were actually murderers. Mm -hmm. um, and that had changed from the 18th century when people were being executed for all sorts of, um, you know, sort of minor crimes. Um, like Jack Shepard, obviously executed for thief, uh, being a thief or a robber. But so by the 19th century, you see that it's mainly mur mur um, murderers that were going to the gallows. Um, there were reasons for that. If you got a reprieve from execution, it didn't mean to say you could just then wander around the streets, you know, and that you were free. Um, a lot of um, people were actually transported to... Yeah. yeah. Initially America, and then after the American War of Independence, um, they were transported to the Australian colonies, the penal colonies in New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, which obviously is now known as Tasmania. And so you start to see that the need for cheap labour to exploit the riches mm. of empire <laughs> and the colonies became more important than executing uh, people at home. Uh, but that wasn't the only uh, reason. We also started to build prisons. So uh, there was a lot of people who uh, were believed in penal reform and believed that those um, who committed crimes could actually be reformed. Um, but obviously the prisons that were being built were very like somewhere like Brixton, which was known as the House of Correction, <laughs> which by its very name... <laughs> Um, so, uh, makes you realise that these were not easy places to go to. They were, um, you know, harsh punishments, mm. and they often ran on the separate, uh, the silent system where the prisoners were not allowed to um, interact with each other at all. Oh wow! Gosh, that feels quite archaic, doesn't it? Yes, and these were being built in the nineteenth century. Um, prisons like as I say like Brixton, Pentonville, Holloway um, and you know they were they were really horrible places you know often the and the the prisoners were not just kept separate and silent they were often put to work um, like on treadmills for days so that they could uh, reflect on right. their criminal past <laughs> that was the idea um, and so, you know, many people believe that that was possibly just as bad a punishment um, being either transported or going to prison as it was to go to the gallows. You know, mm. these, were, these were alternatives, but they weren't necessarily easy alternatives to, to being executed. Goodness me. And you've mentioned the gallows quite a lot, and which, of course, was one of the, I want to say the most popular but you know one of the most common forms of execution but there was also I mean there were other things as well there was beheading there was boiling there was a variety of things which were a bit bit less common but one thing I read in the exhibition which blew my mind and I have to say I did not know about this I I learned a lot um was that uh beheading was only uh finally outlawed in the 1970s what I mean <laughs> I couldn't I, I uh, yeah, explain, please. Well, I can't. I can't make my peace with that. Well, treason was always still. Most people who were beheaded were beheaded for tyranny or treason. Mm. Um, so these crimes against the state remained, you know, the most serious regarded by the state as the most serious crimes. Um, you know, up until quite recently. 
Um, obviously, like a lot of countries, um, these um, sort of things were left on statute books mm. and not really dealt with. You know, there was no way that someone would be beheaded in in the twentieth century. Hope not. <laughs> but um, I think you know, at the end of our exhibition, we do sort of have these um, statistics about when public ex um, sorry when executions ended in this country or capital punishment, I should say. Um, and like a lot of countries, uh, 55 countries in the world today have um, capital punishment available to them, but a lot of those countries don't actually use it. Um, and um, similarly to us, you know, these things remained on our statute book, but, um, you know, would never have been used. It was just almost by accident that they were still there, really. And so what would something like boiling be used for that was quite rare wasn't it boiling was fortunately very rare um we've only discovered two incidents of it and they were both related to poisoning by food so the first um one was um a chef or a cook in a household who poisoned a bishop um and this was during the time of henry the eighth and he was so outraged by this crime that he decided that the chef should be executed by boiling. Um, and uh, after that, there was one other incident, and that was a woman who was executed in the same way, which must have been the worst kind of execution. I mean, obviously, burning is also a terrible, terrible way to die, but boiling must have been very, very gruesome. And fortunately, Henry VIII's son, when he became king, he just got away, you know, did away with that very quickly. But we wanted to represent it in our um, exhibition um, because I think people, as you said, you know, people do think about the gallows and hanging because that was probably the main way that people, ordinary people, uh, would have been executed. But it was also significant to um, acknowledge mm. the beheadings, the drawing, hanging and quartering, the boiling, that these were other methods that were used in this country um, that people might not be quite so aware of. And what about burning as well? Because famously, everybody sort of says, oh, witches were burned. But that's not really the case, is it? That was the case in other countries, I understand. Burning was more for heretics. Yes, although I suppose witches is a form of, could well, be regarded so. as a form of heresy. Yeah. Um, I mean, our exhibition only features people who were um, executed in London. Right. And... Um, Strangely enough, I think more, more witches might not have, you know, were maybe executed outside of London. Mm. But um, we do feature um, someone who was um, taken over by um, the devil, if you like, or um, killed by, um, executed for witchcraft. And she was actually hung. Um, so, um, you know, as you say, it wasn't necessarily that everyone was um, burned who was a heretic uh, or a, a, sorry, yeah. sorry, a witch. Um, so some were hung, but that would have been in a later period by the 18th century or maybe the sixth, uh, 17th century. You, yeah. you tend to find that um, people were were hung for witchcraft as well. Gosh. Now, there's it's funny because as a guide, uh, we talk about a couple of very big 
you know, headline executions quite regularly. One of which, of course, is the only time so far that we've ever executed a monarch, um, which was Charles I. And I have to say, I got stupidly excited when I saw the artifacts that you had there, because whilst we're saying they are not necessarily 100% genuinely the ones that we think they are, but but it's quite likely um, you have some of the things that Charles I was wearing. So for those who don't know about the execution of Charles I, what, what we always tell as guides is, um, it was in January of um, uh, 16, hang on, I've got my dates completely mixed up. 49. Thank you. <laughs> 1649. <laughs> and um, he had lost the, well, this big civil war, and he went out from the uh, banqueting house, which is on Whitehall, if anyone knows uh, that area. It's directly opposite um, in front of the horse guards. And he came out on, onto a, a scaffold that had been built through one of the windows. And famously wore two shirts because it was the end of January, it was snowing, it was cold, and he didn't want people to think that he was shaking with fear. So he wore a second shirt to keep him warm so that he wouldn't uh, wouldn't shake um, through cold. And you have possibly that shirt there, don't you? Yes, it's actually an undershirt. Um, yeah. It's more like a vest. Mm. Um, it's of knitted silk. And it would have been, um, they are very rare, but there are a couple of survivors like that. It's a very fine silk, silk knitted silk vest. Um, it stretches to different sizes. Charles I was very slim and quite small. Um, we believe it would have fitted him quite well. <laughs> Um, and um, it was the two two of these sort of undershirts that um, he would have worn to keep out the cold because from the drawings, it looks like he was wearing a white shirt mm. over the top of these. And this is a, a, is blue. Um, it has, it's been in the Museum of London collections since the 1920s. It came with some documentary evidence which claimed that it was one of the two vests or undershirts that he wore. Um, we have done some analysis that are on it and we are uh, awaiting in anticipation the results so of exciting. some scientific analysis. We believe the dating is correct, the size, as I said, um, and there are stains on, on the vest um, which have been looked at under ultra violet light and appear to suggest they are bodily fluids so it's not his lunch now, well it could have been any type of bodily fluid right, not okay. necessarily blood um and the bodily fluids could have occurred after um you know obviously this has been in people's hands since 1649 this best so it's been uh handed around for a long time but um you know obviously it's very difficult as a curator because when you look back at documentary evidence um, of things that came into the collection in our, in our very early history of the Museum of London, um, people didn't question things as much as perhaps they do now. Sure. We have a very, very rigid and uh, formalised due diligence process. Um but it's always easier with things like paintings and things because they have a very clearly recorded history. But social history items don't have that. 
you know, so you have to sometimes take things um, on belief. Um, and, you know, but now we are slightly more cautious about authentic or sort of um, sort of saying say definite. Yeah. Definite. Which is right, because yeah. otherwise you end up with five of them and you end up with that thing of going, oh, this is you know, his shirt and this is his shirt. And then everyone's like, which one is it? I mean, that's exciting. When when are you expecting to kind of know for definite? I'm not sure. Um, the scientific analysis was done in Zurich. Um, and um, one of my colleagues who is a dress and textile expert, she, she took the samples over. We had to take a very tiny sample from the vest um it that is the only way that you can really do mm. a scientific analysis on a textile yeah. um and um obviously we go through a process of accepting that that was worthwhile taking this tiny sample um to uh, try and get to the bottom of this <laughs> the history of this vest although obviously it might still be very difficult but at least we'll have more evidence one way or another to to prove um you know to hopefully say whether it, it was very likely which is all we're going to be able to say really yeah. oh, well please do come back on and let us know when, uh, when yeah. that comes through <laughs> that would be so exciting um <laughs> yeah I got very excited by that and there were things that he supposedly gave to his friends he gave them gloves and and a shawl and all this sort of thing I love this idea of I'm off I'm off to my death lads I'm going to give you my nice you know shiny shiny gloves and shiny shawl and all of that um it's quite a it's, it's quite a thing and apparently he used to give gloves away quite regularly to friends and and supporters and that which, which yeah. seems like mad but brilliant at the same time <laughs> well Charles I was very extravagant he spent a lot of money and that was part of his downfall obviously um you know one of the reasons that he was um executed was or you know, sort of deposed was because um, he was felt to be a highly extravagant mm. um, uh, monarch spending the, gov uh, the government and the country's money. And I suppose in a way, the uh, fact he had hundreds of gloves that he was able very <laughs> give away and these were not ordinary gloves you know obviously they were highly embellished they were leather or you know whatever so um they wouldn't have been cheap gloves so i suppose in a funny sort of way they are uh, a reflection of um his downfall as mm. well as uh, the fact that he might have been generous but uh, perhaps misguided gener generosity in that respect yeah, I mean, if you're going to spend taxpayers' money on fancy gloves that you give to your friends, it's not going to end well, is it? Let's face it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the other things that I thought was really fascinating, and um, now, they, okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying that there are, you know, lots of stories that we tell about executions. And, and in terms of, so obviously, Charles gave a gift to, you know, his friends who were there with him. Um, there are stories of executioners being being paid and particularly when it comes to beheadings um that they will be tipped a few coins which i've always been led to believe that is where we get the word or the phrase severance pay from uh that you is that is there truth in that um i'm not sure about that um just say yes yeah, beverly I'm... just say yes <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of phrases that um people associate with executions it's uh um and um you know it is always quite difficult to unpick yeah. the origins of these um but one of the things that i read in the exhibition is that one of the forms of pay could be the clothing 
that the executed person was wearing that was given to the execution afterwards almost almost like a fee really did, did the executioners not get paid from oh, i don't know the state or whoever whatever you know the prison or whoever was it they took their fee kind of from what they could get how did it work no they they executioners were paid a fee um but executions surprisingly didn't happen throughout the year they mm. happened um to reflect the old bailey session so it was eight times a year and sometimes certainly by the 19th century there may have been only one execution um and so the execution uh, you know per session so the executioner's fee was obviously not enough to earn the, you know have have a living they often had dual uh, professions mm. um and so any extra money they could make at the time of the execution um they would do so they would um take clothing if they if they could um they would also um cut the rope into pieces and sell part really? rope yes as as a um not not like usable pieces would it be a, a, a kind of almost like a souvenir would it yes as a memento um and um you know executioners themselves often came from quite um a sort of low lower class background mm -hmm. you know they were not ex to execute someone was not unfortunately a science you know it was um you might have become an executioner just because you know you knew the person who was the, ex the main executioner before you and they sort of gave you a bit of an apprenticeship as it were there weren't that many executioners um you tend to find the same one certainly by the 18th 19th century James Calcraft was was a notorious one and they were often really disliked by the public because they came from they came from a similar background, you know, so if you can imagine the mob would have not liked the executioners, um, you know, it was felt as if they were doing the state's dirty work mm. and uh, therefore they weren't particularly popular. Um, and, um, you know, these other, you know, means that they were doing to make money as well, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't popular with the public. No, and, and realistically, you know that potentially if you cut down a gentleman's tree you could be the next one on his noose so it's not yeah. uh yeah not going to endear you to the public really is it no and unfortunately there were incidents of bungled executions um you know where um things didn't go quite according to plan um sometimes that's because people struggled on the scaffold and um obviously it became a bit of a, a an ugly scene um you know even worse than it than it would have been um if people sort of started kicking or you know trying to break free or whatever um and um you know sometimes the executioner's rope um wasn't always as efficient as as it should have been mm. Goodness me. I mean, it's, it's it's awful enough to be executed, but then when things go wrong, you think, oh, goodness, it's just, it's not, it's not a comfortable feeling, is it? It really isn't. No. no. And one of the things that um really touched me in the museum was the the letters. You've got quite a few letters for the people sent home as like their last letter or petitions and things like that. And they're really a part of, you know, we, we think of, of executions in the abstract and especially, like I say, with, 
talking about, oh, so-and-so did this, oh, and then it got executed. It's all very abstract. But those letters, I actually found I couldn't read a lot of them because I found them too too emotional. How did you get your hands on letters like that? What's the what's the process for, for that? The letters, uh, the last, what we refer to as the last letters, the letters that were written from the condemned cell in the 1820s have been in the Museum of London collections since the 1970s. Um, and they are really powerful. And I think, although we have displayed them before in permanent galleries, they really obviously come into their own in this exhibition. And one of the reasons that um, we have wanted to display so many of them, there's eight, um, is because we were really concerned about uh, sort of the personal story. We didn't mm. just want this to be about the point of execution and the crowd. We wanted to really understand more about the people who were condemned to a public death. And it was those personal stories, teasing those out, learning more about those people that was, for me, you know, probably one of the most important parts of the exhibition. We didn't want these to be unknown, unforgotten Londoners anymore. We wanted to really shine a light on their sometimes very tragic stories. Um, and interestingly, a lot of people say to me, oh, well, you know, that's part, this is part of our dark history, public executions, it's not relevant anymore. But when you actually read about some of those who were condemned to death, their lives are strangely familiar. Mm. You know, we've got people who were led astray by a gang or, uh, you know, people who um, were victims of domestic violence. Um, women who uh, felt forced um, to kill their babies because they were abandoned uh, by the father. You know, these are stories that a lot of us can relate to today. They're often bound up with poverty or the way people live. Yeah. Um, they're they're so human they are... stories, aren't they? They're just their normal, you know, people who just, and like you said earlier, didn't have the recourse to being able to petition or have the people behind them. So it's, yeah, it's really quite horrible. Yeah. And I think that's why one of the reasons that um, with those last letters, um, we have on the um, sound cup an audio of um, men who, are, who were in um, Pentonville prison mm. in April, 2022, who were reading those letters. Oh, wow. And I was really, yeah, I was really keen that we had that sort of contemporary feel to those letters, because when you actually read them, as you said, you know, they're so powerful and they could have been written um, today uh, by people who were obviously not being condemned to death in this country, but people are still condemned to death in other countries. And you do wonder what they would have, what they are writing in their last days. Yeah, and um, they're so beautifully read by the men at Pentonville who were so interested in finding out about these people who were being condemned to death, their stories. Um, and, you know, I think that that adds a huge authenticity um, to that um, to that display to be able to listen to um, people reading those um, letters who are, 
you know, have been condemned to imprisonment due to our current penal system. And who, due to just time, may well have been destined to to the gallows 200 years ago, you know, for what they did. Absolutely. And that's something they were interested um, in learning more about as well. You know, what would have been their fate? Um, um, It does make you reflect, doesn't it? Because anyone can end up in prison. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things, any one of us, um, you know, could end up in prison by accident or purpose or intent, Um, you know, and um, I think that, you know, when you read some of the personal stories of those who were condemned and did actually go to the gallows, it it is really, really poignant Mm. to think, oh my goodness, you know, and they're so young, some of them. They really are. Like you say, being sort of you're astray do you have any particular stories of people in the in the exhibition or all that you know of that that you you want to tell us about because there's quite a few what I love about it is is it's not a, a global look at it. it it does pick out particular people with their stories is there anyone out in particular that you are particularly interested in that's a really difficult sub, uh, a question because there are so many great stories I suppose one of the ones that captures my imagination is that of Eliza Fenning Mm. Um, who was executed for um, a te- uh, obviously a miscarriage of justice. Um, she was and, and convicted of poisoning members of her household that she, where she, she was a domestic, said that she laced the dumplings with arsenic. Uh, nobody died, but the household became ill. She also ate dumplings and became ill herself which was um something later people felt was in her defense but obviously wasn't really um made a lot of at the time um she was condemned to death and um she her she wasn't saved she wasn't given a reprieve she was very young she was only 22 and um her story was one of those that people wrote about for a long time after someone like like Charles Dickens, for example, because it raised a lot of pro- issues around the trial system. You know, people were not really defended in the way that they are today. Um, and trials were very rushed. They were often over within a day mm-hmm. and juries expected to make a decision within sometimes 15 minutes half an hour and obviously these were decisions where they were gonna the punishment was potentially death it's or a most lot, likely. isn't it for that just you say 15 yeah. minutes rush through it's it's quite a uh, yeah. yeah and you know cases like Eliza Fenning where she was seen as this young innocent girl who went to the gallows wearing a white dress not sure whether that was to represent her innocence or because white dresses were popular at the time, whatever. She entirely captured the execution crowd, a lot of whom were hugely sympathetic to her case and were very distraught to see this really fine, beautiful young girl uh, being hung at at, at the gallows of Tyburn. Um, and, you know, it's those sorts of stories that I think people are not familiar with that we have really been able to shine a light on. And I think for me, that has been something that's been really important about this exhibition. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the ones that stood out to me as well. And um, like you say, I mean, a miscarriage of justice, but where did the arsenic come from? Do we know, did she poison them? 
was it somebody else do we know anything well there was evidence that um she went to the um local farmers um well what we could would call a pharmacy today where arsenic was readily available but arsenic was used for a range of um things in the kitchen it could have been used for pest control for example right. so um you know it it wasn't necessarily something that people would have used as poison but the fact it was readily available meant that it was often the poison of choice mm. <laughs> for people who were um who were thinking of um poisoning someone so I think yeah. that was you know obviously that's it was often when you do see that people were poisoned within a, a domestic setting it was obviously off, often through arsenic yeah goodness me can you tell me anything about John Gale as well he was a character that popped up um uh, which I, who I thought was very interesting as well what what can you tell me about him now he famously well I say famously um Curiously for this, he doesn't actually end up at the gallows himself, but he's a, a fan of it, isn't he? Yes, and he, um, what used to happen was people would have been kept in Newgate Prison, which of course was near the Old Bailey. And after they were condemned to death, they would have been taken to Newgate and awaiting um, their execution in the um, condemned cell. And then they would be taken on procession from Newgate to Tyburn. This was until Tyburn closed in 1783. And John Gale was one of those sort of characters of London that we would have probably all known about if he was alive <laughs> yeah, today. Probably. And uh, he used to travel on the carts with the condemned. Uh, that was just his thing, you know, he was known to do it. I'm not quite sure why he started it, but he was like one of those familiar characters that um, everyone who knew when the procession was going to happen, was going to occur from Newgate to Tyburn, he would have been there. He would have been on the carts alongside the um, the executed, but not quite sure why. <laughs> but uh, you know, he was just one of those London characters that we all know and love. It's like the execution roadie kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he might have liked the pageant as well because yeah. there was a lot of ceremony and pageantry that went alongside the um the procession from Newgate to Tyburn um and um you know sitting on the carts of the condemned he would have perhaps been part of enjoying the adoration of the crowd you know that yeah, was lining part of the ceremony because I mean it, it's yeah I always say to guests there's not much that the Brits do well, but one of the things we do is pomp and ceremony. And Absolutely. That's kind of what this thing becomes, isn't it? it when it, when you say, um, obviously it changes when Tyburn closes, but you go from Newgate to Tyburn, it's a good, what, couple of miles. It, there's a there's scope for that. There's scope for pomp and ceremony. And you can imagine him just being like, I really like this. I'm, I'm going to be part of it. And I love that he's not, he's not a member of the prison. He's not a member of the you know, execution squad. He's just a guy, but he becomes a bit like that guy who always stands at the front at the, at the festivals in the summer and everyone knows him. Um, it just, he, that's what he does. And I, I love that about him. Yeah, and the fact that he his portrait was engraved, yes. obviously we have that in the exhibition, shows that he was a character, you know, a known character, a person who was worthy of having his portrait um, drawn. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he would have, I, I think it's always, you know, as a historian, you always sometimes wish to go back in time, I, obviously not yeah. to view a public execution, <laughs> but you understand more about these people, you know, that were 
the great Londoners of their day. Um, and, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, as a social historian in particular, yeah. it's the, the Londoners that I, I love to learn more about. To see them in their environment. It would be, it would be yeah. fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, now, before we end, one of the things that I, I always boggles my mind in terms of understanding time and sounds very deep it's not at all but I always think it's incredible that you could travel to some of the last executions on the tube this is where I think I feel like executions feel really like an ancient part of history and the tube feels really modern but there's a crossover at the start and the end of, of those two things and when executions switched from being in Tyburn as you said it closed down to outside Newgate uh, the a lot of the people would have travelled there on the first bit of the London Tube. And yes, and it is quite shocking, and that's why I included that <laughs> that fact um, in the exhibition because um, you know all of a sudden London is becoming to become a, an industrial city. It's becoming much more populated. Um, by the middle of the 19th century, its population was doubling, you know, at a rate of knots. And um, obviously the tr transport system was becoming much more efficient. Mm. Um, and yet we were still having these ancient practices of public execution. And obviously that just didn't fit well with um, the modernising society which was regarded by many as a civilizing society as well obviously the victorians had these high moral uh, <laughs> ideas and all of a sudden they believed that um public execution was not part of our civilized society you know everything should happen behind closed doors you know including pain and suffering we don't want to see it on the streets anymore and that was one of the arguments for um, putting them behind closed doors. Um, and interestingly, there had been quite a strong um, sort of support for the end of capital punishment until that point. But then once people realised that actually we could just do hangings behind the prison walls because we now had prisons that were capable of doing that mm. and had the yards and the resources to do that the argument against capital punishment then just disappeared out of sight um, out of mind i guess you know absolutely yes and um i think it was because this discomfort about this sort of public side of it that was really gaining uh, support for capital, the abolition of capital punishment. And so once the public side had gone, you know, so had the interest and the taste for removing uh, capital punishment altogether. And obviously then, um, you know, that was in 1868, the last public execution. And obviously it wasn't until the 60s that we, 1960s, so 100 years later that we see um, abolition of capital punishment in this country. Goodness me. Well, Beverly, thank you so much for a trot through the, the stories of, of execution. I mean, there is, I feel like we've skimmed the surface of what's in the exhibition, but it's really interesting just to kind of get a bit more, because uh, like as guys, we talk about executions all the time, but just, it, it, it answered a lot of questions for me actually. Um, 
you know, it, 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 there were a few bits of like muddiness in my understanding of bits and pieces of it. And it really solidified that. And this has been such a fascinating chat. Thank you so much. If there, if you had to pick one piece from this exhibition that people should not miss, what would be your, your top spot? I think the Newgate prison door, um, the condemned, um, the door that the, the condemned stepped out of, the last door on their way to the scaffold outside Newgate. And it has such a strong presence in the gallery. Oh, you can imagine all the despair and suffering um, as the people stepped up to exit that door on their way uh, to the scaffold. And for me, you know, that is the power of a museum object. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't get an object more powerful than that. And that's what museums can do that you can't read about. You know, we can provide that material culture in a gallery setting that really provokes a lot of emotion in our visitors. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, you come around the corner and you see it and you, there's a, there is a visceral reaction, at least in me anyway, when I saw that door and I thought, oh, blimey, you know. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you very much for for coming and chatting about it. Um, So the museum, it's at the Museum of London in Docklands, which I have to say, one of my favorite museums in London anyway. I'm not, I, I know everyone's like, oh, is that you saying this because Beverly's on? No, I genuinely love it. Um, I, I did a little thing on my um, Instagram about Sailor Town, which is my favorite bit of the whole museum because it's so atmospheric. Um, you zip through and I I didn't have time on the day really, but I was like, I'm going to go and find Sailor Town. Um, but it's, I, I love the docks. I live near the docks. I love that history. So for me, it's, it's a fascinating museum. The museum is free. The exhibition is paying exhibition. What are the... Um, When's it on trail? What what are the details? The exhibition closes on April the 16th, so just a week after um, Easter. Um, full details of pricing is on our website. And if you book in advance, there is a reduction in price. And we also have a book as well to go with the exhibition. So, um, you know, hopefully those of you who are unable to visit, you might be interested in in finding out more about the book on yeah, the museum. I, I did have a flip through the book. I didn't I didn't buy it, although I kind of regretted that decision afterwards. But yeah, it's a, it's a really good um, meaty tome. Um, also, you were saying that the weekend slots are booking out fast, but there's plenty of availability midweek. Um, yes. So if you're able to get to London and go midweek, then um, have it to yourself. I spent about an hour and a half in there and I only left because I had to go somewhere else. So that's the kind of length of time you'll need for that. Um, but thank you so much for coming along today, Beverly. It's been a real treat talking to you. Um, I'm sure our listeners will have loved all of the details um, about executions. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I'm glad you enjoyed the exhibition. Absolutely, I did. And we will so get you back on as and when you have more information I hope you about that. I have to say, it was real. Oh, yes. um, I want to know more about that. Chat about some of our old friends. Like Jack <laughs> thank you so much, Beverly. Okay, really thank you. It was um, a really enlightening little talk. Um, if you've got any questions or anything you want me to uh, to ask Beverly, I can always drop her a note. But uh, but do come and let me know what you thought. Um, the exhibition, as we mentioned, keeps running until the end of April. So do go and uh, check it out if you can. I know some of you have already been to see it, which is great. Let me know what, uh, what you think. But that's it from me this week. Thank you all so much for coming along. It's lovely to have you with me. And I will see you next week for our lovely guest Fiona, who will be chatting all about Saxon London. Sounds a little bit oh you know older than we often go um 
but we've already recorded the chat and I have to say it was really fun. Uh, so hope we'll see you back next week. Don't forget you can get in touch via Instagram, which is at Ladies Who London Podcast. You can follow me at tourguidealex. No, at tourguide.alex. I should know that by now, uh, which is me directly. And you can also drop a line, uh, Ladies at London Who G. No, oh my goodness, come on. Uh, ladies Who London at gmail.com. It doesn't get any better, does it? Um, if you want to drop a line, let me know. Um, I'm really enjoying having all your emails and everything. So please do come say hi. But otherwise, see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Lots of love. Bye.